The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. There's a famous legend surrounding the death of 18th century Russian Empress Catherine the Great. It's been said that on one day, she saw a woman who looked exactly like her, her doppelganger. So she ordered the person to be killed. Then one week later, Catherine died from a stroke. Although it's almost certainly apocryphal, this legend is one of the reasons spooky superstitions arose about people seeing their own doppelgangers. Seeing your own might suggest ill tidings coming your way. But setting aside the folklore and superstitions, what's the worst that could happen just because somebody else looks exactly like you? The answer might be surprising. Sometimes paths with a doppelganger can cross innocently, by accident, or maybe quite intentionally. Join me now as we examine the incredible true story of Olga Svek and her horrific encounter with a look-alike. You'll hear a twisted story of friendship, betrayal, and cold-blooded murder. You'll also learn that sometimes, it's not you who finds your doppelganger. Your doppelganger finds you. In 1999, a Kansas City man named Richard Jones was blindsided when police showed up and arrested him for aggravated robbery. They said he accosted a woman outside a local Walmart before hopping into a getaway car. Later, both the driver of the getaway car and the victim herself positively ID'd Richard from a stack of photos at the police station. And despite having a rock-solid alibi, Richard was found guilty and sentenced to 19 years in prison. Fifteen years later, Richard began hearing stories of another inmate named Ricky who looked just like him, a nearly identical doppelganger. And as it turned out, this other inmate had lived very close to the Walmart, and his address was the same one the getaway driver had originally reported to police. Richard reached out to the Innocence Project, and their investigators quickly realized that his arrest had been a case of mistaken identity. Ultimately, Richard Jones' conviction was overturned, and he was set free, but only after sitting behind bars for 17 years. Richard's tragic story is a bit of a unicorn, the result of incredibly rare and truly unfortunate coincidences. But what happens when your doppelganger experience isn't the result of pure chance? What if you were intentionally targeted simply because you looked exactly like someone else? Well, that's exactly what happened in Ingolstadt, Germany in 2022. One August evening, the parents of a 23-year-old woman became worried when they hadn't heard from their daughter, Sharaban. They knew she'd been out driving that night, 
so decided to go out looking for her. Eventually, they spotted their daughter's car parked alongside the road, so they pulled over and looked through the window. To their horror, they saw their daughter's lifeless body in the back seat. She'd been stabbed at least 50 times. When police arrived on the scene, the parents positively identified the victim as their daughter, Sheraban. It was every parent's worst nightmare. But the very next day, they received a strange phone call. The autopsy revealed that the victim wasn't actually Sheraban, but somebody else. Instead, the real victim had been a woman named Hadija O, an Algerian beauty influencer on Instagram. Police said that although there was a stunning resemblance between the two women, the victim wasn't in fact their daughter. The ensuing police investigation discovered Sheraban had been very active on social media the previous week, setting up fake Instagram accounts and deliberately searching for women who looked like her. She'd apparently evaluated about five other candidates who resembled her before deciding to approach Hadija O. Police believed that Sheraban murdered Hadija in order to fake her own death in what's become known in Germany as the doppelganger murder. And although the motive behind the murder remains unknown, there's hope that everything will be revealed when Sheraban's case eventually goes to trial. So far, all the evidence is pointing to the fact that Hadija was specifically targeted for her appearance. But what if your evil doppelganger not only needed you to look like them and sound like them, but also have a similar background and speak the same language? Because this type of doppelganger actually wanted to replace you entirely. It's a terrifying thought that became a reality for 35-year-old Olga Svek. On Friday, September 2nd, 2016, Olga Svik woke up in a New York City hospital. As she slowly came to, she found her worried sister, Arena, sitting beside her, waiting for her to wake up. Olga was foggy and confused, but whatever happened to her must have been pretty bad for her sister to fly in all the way from the Ukraine to be right by her side. Olga even struggled to remember how she came to be in the hospital in the first place. Five days earlier, Olga's friend Marina had come to her apartment to find Olga unconscious in bed. She quickly called an ambulance, and for the next few days, Olga's life teetered on the brink, slipping in and out of consciousness, and even briefly in a coma. According to her sister, when Olga first woke up, she couldn't even move her eyes. She was in a semi-unresponsive state, incapable of clear communication requiring Arena to feed her and hold her up to use the bathroom. To the hospital staff, Olga's illness was a complete mystery. Even with full blood and urine tests, they didn't have a clue what could possibly be wrong with her. Nevertheless, Olga very slowly began to improve. Even after Olga was discharged, she was still fairly confused and disoriented when she got back to her apartment. It was Olga's sister, Arena, who noticed the signs of foul play littered around the place, starting off with valuables that were missing, including some $2,000 in cash and Olga's red purse. She also noticed that a secret drawer where Olga hid her passport and U.S. employment authorization card had been taken as well. 
Most suspicious of all were the dozens of white pills left scattered around Olga's bed. To Arena, it was looking more and more like someone had not only robbed Olga, but had also tried to murder her and make the death look like a suicide. After contacting local police, the case fell into the hands of Detective Rogers of the NYPD. But as he delved into the details, the pieces of the puzzle began to form a picture that was simply too bewildering to accept at face value. Olga had been working as an esthetician and eyelash specialist at a beauty salon in Queens, New York, when she fell mysteriously ill. One of her regular clients over the past six months or so had been 40-year-old Victoria Nasarova. The weekend before Olga was hospitalized, Victoria had contacted Olga at home. She told her she had an eyelash emergency and begged her to help her out because she was about to leave on a trip. Olga never saw her clients at home and was reluctant to make the exception for Victoria. But Victoria persisted and eventually Olga agreed. To show her appreciation, Victoria promised to bring over what she called the best cheesecake in town as a thank you. So when Victoria arrived at Olga's apartment, she brought along three small pieces of cheesecake. Shortly after eating the cheesecake, Olga felt off, suddenly sweating, dizzy, and then horribly nauseous. Minutes later, she started throwing up. Victoria told her not to worry, that she'd clean it up, but then Olga passed out. After that, she remembers, foggily coming to consciousness intermittently, seeing Victoria going through her things. The next thing she knew, she woke up and was in the hospital. Olga's story was certainly strange. Definitely the first time Detective Rogers had heard a person claim attempted murder by the way of cheesecake. He would later admit that at first, he didn't take Olga's claims seriously enough. It had all just seemed so odd. Detective Rogers was suspicious that Olga, perhaps, might be a drug addict. Even Olga herself confirmed to them that the hospital hadn't found any evidence of poisoning. Still, police did their due diligence, starting by searching Olga's apartment. There, they recovered from Olga's trash a clear plastic container that had contained the infamous pieces of cheesecake, and it was bagged as evidence. Police then spoke with Olga's neighbor, who happened to be the uncle of her friend Marina, and all of a sudden, Olga's story seemed a bit more valid. The neighbor told police he was the one who initially discovered Olga unconscious. According to him, he'd seen Victoria leaving Olga's place the day before he found her, and the next day she came over again, this time bringing chicken soup because Olga apparently wasn't feeling very well. But this time, after Victoria left, the neighbor went over to check on Olga. There he found her unconscious in bed, scantily clad in lingerie, despite Olga having been dressed in sweatpants when Victoria came over. He also claimed that inside of Olga's apartment, it was like a sauna, and that when he checked the thermostat, he could see the heat was turned up to maximum, despite being a hot New York summer day outside. Detective Rogers believed it was possible this mysterious woman named Victoria had actually staged Olga's apartment to look like a suicide. But why? 
That would remain a mystery for quite some time. The cheesecake incident had occurred at the end of August 2016, after Olga had moved to the United States just two years earlier. In the court case that was to eventually follow, Assistant DA Constantinos Liturgis would give some of the background on how Olga managed to make her way to the U.S. from the Ukraine in 2014, after living through the Crimea crisis seeking political asylum. With the help of her friend Marina, Olga was able to find a place to live. Marina suggested that she live with her uncle, with Marina's uncle, a man named Alec Ishakov, who was the owner of the two-story private house located at 6445 110th Street here in this town. He was a widower. His wife had died. He was alone. He didn't speak much English, and he had some health problems. So this was a potential mutually beneficial scenario for these two people. Um, he could have someone in the house who could help him, if need be, but also for Olga, she could be living with someone whom she could trust. I say trust because that's going to be a very important aspect of this case. Olga came to this country speaking minimal English. She didn't really know anybody. She had no family here. She wasn't married. She had no kids or any other connections. After arriving in the U.S., Olga got work as an eyelash technician at a beauty salon and was successfully settling into her new life in America. And she was eventually rewarded by getting her much sought-after U.S. Employment Authorization card. But everything came crashing down after her run-in with Victoria. She'd been robbed and drugged to the point of near death and now experienced memory loss, insomnia, and other post-traumatic symptoms like anxiety and feeling her sense of safety had been violated. To make matters worse, police were having absolutely zero luck finding Victoria. Olga's case was becoming a dry waiting game, with the likelihood of finding Victoria dwindling with each passing month. But in March 2017, about six months after Olga had been hospitalized, something quite unknown to her, or even to police, there was a dramatic turn in the case. In Sheepshead Bay, a neighborhood in Brooklyn, recognized for its vibrant Russian-speaking community, a 40-year-old woman named Nadezda Ford was also searching for Victoria Nasarova. But her reason for wanting to find Victoria had nothing to do with what happened to Olga. In fact, she didn't even know about it. However, Nadezda's reasons for hunting down Victoria were just as personal and even more deadly because Nadezda believed that Victoria had murdered her mother and wanted justice. Nadezda Ford had immigrated to the United States from Russia around 2007 and it hadn't taken long for her to settle in. By 2014, she'd already been married, divorced, and found steady employment. That fall, Nadezda was looking forward to a trip back to Russia to visit her mother, Alla Alexenkyo, in Krasnodar, a Russian city near the Black Sea. Nadezda later told 48 Hours that her mother was everything to her, raising two children in the 90s on her own in Russia, working four to five jobs at the same time to give her children a better life. Even though Nadezda had moved away, she continued speaking to her mother on a daily basis. 
It was during one of these phone calls that Nadezda had first started to become a bit worried when her mother began telling her about a new friend she'd made, a neighbor named Victoria Nasarova. Victoria told Alla that she was going to be taking a trip to New York, so if she had anything she wanted Victoria to bring along and give to her daughter Nadezda, she'd be happy to pass it along when she arrived. Alla handed Victoria two mink coats and $6,000 to give to her daughter. But then, Victoria never took the trip she promised. Eventually, Alla asked for the money and coats back. Victoria said she'd return everything on October 4th, 2014. On October 5th, Nadezda phoned her mother, as she always did, but she didn't pick up and never called back. This was extremely out of the ordinary. It was the first time in eight years Nadezda's mother hadn't responded to her calls, texts, emails, or Skype attempts. So she called Victoria, her mother's neighbor, and asked if she knew where her mother was. Victoria said she had a cup of tea with Nadezda's mother the day before and that her mother was going on a trip with a friend. She also suggested that Alice's phone had probably died. But when Nadezda went online to check her mother's phone log, she saw that Victoria had called her mother at 11 p.m. the night before. She could also see that Alla hadn't answered any calls after the final one with Victoria. Believing something terrible must have happened, Nadezda went straight to the airport and flew to Russia. When Nadezda got to Russia, she immediately informed police what she suspected had happened to her mother and who she believed was responsible. A few days later, she was able to convince Victoria to meet her outside of the apartment building she shared with her mother, Alla. When Victoria emerged, Nadezda gave her a big bear hug, signifying, she said, that she'd choke her to death if she didn't tell her where her mother was. Victoria pushed herself away from Nadezda and promised that Alla was alive but then turned and ran into the building and up the stairs. Nadezda was close on her heels. Unbeknownst to Victoria, Russian police were already waiting for her upstairs, and she was about to run straight into them. The Russian investigation into Alice's disappearance would reveal that her apartment had been thoroughly looted. From family heirlooms, expensive jewelry, to her life savings of $50,000, absolutely everything of value was gone. But when police questioned Victoria, they seemed to believe her story and that she'd had nothing to do with any of it, and they allowed Victoria to go free. Police assured Nadezda that her mother was bound to turn up eventually, but Nadezda was certain something terrible had happened to her mother and wasn't about to give up searching for and put up posters in the area, driving thousands of miles around Russia in search of her mother. Then one night, Nadezda had an idea and illicitly obtained access to footage from traffic cameras across the city after offering a bribe. Beginning with the traffic cameras in Krasnodar, Nadezda progressively broadened her search, ultimately discovering a photo from a camera designated for monitoring speeding, located approximately 140 kilometers away from Alice's apartment. The photograph showed Victoria's rental car with someone next to her, slouched, almost sitting sideways. 
The timestamp showed it was taken on October 5th at 10 a.m. The day Nadezda's mother had disappeared. Naturally, Nadezda presented her findings to police, but when she did, she learned they'd already been pursuing her mother's case more actively than they'd been letting on. In fact, they had already seen the speak camera photos and had recently performed a lie detector test on Victoria. It turned out that Victoria had failed all the questions, but was allowed to go free until the official results came back. Victoria, however, wasn't waiting for the official results to come in. Instead, she made an escape and took the first flight out of Russia. The Russian authorities soon put out an international Interpol top priority red notice for Victoria's arrest. According to 48 Hours, Nadezda would later discover that Victoria had a brief affair with a Russian police detective who was later dismissed for helping her escape. Nadezda stayed in Russia searching for her mother until April 2015 when her mother's charred remains were finally discovered about a three hours drive away from Krasnodar where her mother had lived and less than a kilometer away from the town where Victoria Nazarova had grown up. Feeling defeated and mourning the loss of her mother, Nadezda decided to fly back to New York and try and put her life back together. And all was quiet. A few months had passed. Nadezda had gotten no further news from the police in Russia until one night when Nadezda decided to scroll around through Facebook only to come across Victoria's profile. It appeared that after Victoria had escaped from Russia, She'd gone on a lavish holiday to Mexico and then to New York, all the while posting glamorous selfies. Although Nadezda reported her findings to police and immigration officials in the US, still no one was able to track down Victoria. But Nadezda was like a hound dog, and now that she'd picked up a scent, wasn't about to let it go. So in March 2017, she got the attention of private detective Herman Weisberg. Herman Weisberg, a former senior NYPD detective, was now running his own agency. After Nadezda had briefed him on the details of her mother's case, he got to work. But the only real clues he had to work with were the photos Nadezda had discovered after stumbling across Victoria's Facebook feed. But being the experienced detective he was, Herman looked for the kinds of details people don't always look for or pick up when they're looking at photos. It was one particular selfie of Victoria that initially caught his eye, where she was wearing a slick pair of mirrored Ray-Ban sunglasses, fully reflecting the interior of the car she was sitting in. And it was in that reflection he found his first lead. Not only could he see what the dashboard of the car looked like, he could also see gray stitching in the black leather upholstery. The next day, Herman wandered around a parking lot in a train station where he was surrounded by thousands of cars, searching for a car with the same stitching seen in Victoria's selfie. And eventually, he found it, a Chrysler 300. Herman then went back to Victoria's Facebook again, looking for more clues. That's when he noticed that Victoria had given a lot of likes around the Brooklyn neighborhood of Sheepshead Bay, the same exact area, of all places, where Nadezda Ford had been living. 
The next step for Herman Weisberg's team of investigators was good old-fashioned elbow grease. They hit the neighborhood of Sheepshead Bay, scouring the streets, looking for Chrysler 300s, and they found a bunch. But after running the license plate numbers through the system, only one of them came back to a Russian-sounding name. Could it be Victoria? Again, Herman went back to Facebook and this time examined Victoria's sunglasses reflection from another selfie. This time, Herman was able to match a telephone pole and two manhole covers with the actual building she took the photo in front of. If this was the building she lived in, Herman and his team were getting closer to making a positive ID, so decided to stake out the building itself. While surveilling the building, one of Herman's investigators took photos of people coming and going, and of all the things that could possibly ID a person, Herman was able to positively match a pair of shoes from one of Victoria's Facebook photos to one of the women who'd come out of the building. He knew then that he'd found her. Now by this point, Neither Herman or Nadezda were aware that the NYPD was already on the lookout for Victoria, so Herman called Interpol and Homeland Security, but was discouraged to discover that neither agency seemed interested in acting on the information. That's when Herman reached out to the NYPD, and all of a sudden, Olga's case, which had been lying dormant for six months, sprung back to life. Because of Nadezda's relentless pursuit, Herman had just given police all the information they needed to find Victoria, and on March 20th, 2017, they showed up at her apartment with a warrant for her arrest. After securing another warrant to search Victoria's apartment, police discovered many of the stolen items from Olga's apartment were at Victoria's, her red purse, some jewelry, and multiple identification papers. When Nadezda heard the news of Victoria's arrest, she cried with relief. To her, it was a miracle. She just couldn't believe it had finally happened. And what was most shocking was to learn that all this time, Victoria had been living just four blocks away from her own home. Once again, NYPD Detective Rogers was back on the case and it was now time to re-examine all the original evidence. As Rogers began going over both old and new evidence, he noticed Victoria and Olga looked strikingly similar in some photos, at the very least, close enough to be sisters. Previous testing on the cheesecake container had turned up no evidence of poisoning, but just in case it was something highly unusual, the container was sent off to a state-of-the-art FBI testing facility. This time, when the results came back, it tested positive for a Russian tranquilizer called Phenazepam. The dozens of white pills that had been found at Olga's bedside were also determined to be Phenazepam. Detective Rogers would also learn that in hot environments, like Olga's apartment heat being set to max on an already hot summer day, potentially made the Phenazepam even more lethal. With the stolen items from Olga's apartment discovered in Victoria's possession, there wasn't any question about who'd robbed Olga. But there was something deeper gnawing at Detective Rogers. People don't usually poison their friends and acquaintances just to steal a few thousand dollars. It seemed incredibly excessive. Too high risk, 
with low reward for such a serious crime. Again, Rogers turned to look at the photos of the two women looking so much alike, and then he landed on a new, much more sinister theory. Victoria's motive hadn't been just to steal Olga's money and jewelry. What she actually planned on doing was stealing something much more valuable than that, especially to an international fugitive on the run from Interpol. Victoria had known about the red notice for her arrest, something that made traveling anywhere in her own name a risky proposition. If she got caught, she'd be sent back to Russia. And to make matters time-sensitive, Victoria's United States visa was about to expire. Putting the pieces together, Detective Rogers believed that Victoria had plotted to steal Olga's entire identity and her life in the process. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. Herman Weisberg, Nadezda's private investigator, had also uncovered a web of dark secrets surrounding her. As it turned out, Victoria was actually a serial con woman and that using poison was turning out to be a part of her M.O. Herman Weisberg learned that in 2015 and 2016, Victoria worked as an escort and dominatrix. He theorized Victoria could have been drugging and robbing her clients as well, but that perhaps her victims were reluctant to file police reports in fear of making front-page news. Other victims, like Ruben Borkov, fell prey to Victoria through dating apps. After encountering Victoria on a Russian dating website, their initial connections seemed ideal, with Victoria expressing a passion for cooking and Ruben for savory meals. A seemingly perfect match, but when Ruben arrived at Victoria's place for their date, he was taken aback by the fact that the entire dinner had already been prepared. After insisting they sit down and eat the meal promptly, Reuben passed out after eating only two bites of fish. Days later, while Reuben was still barely conscious, Victoria escorted him over to his dry cleaning business, saying he'd drunk two bottles of wine. Reuben's sister then called him an ambulance. Afterwards, Reuben discovered his new watch and about $1,000 in cash were missing. He also found $2,600 worth of charges on his American Express. All this information would go a long way for prosecutors, establishing prior history and motive in the case against Victoria. Due to COVID and other delays, the trial of Victoria Nazarova wouldn't begin until January 2023. If found guilty of the various charges against her, including attempted murder, Victoria would be facing up to 25 years in prison. Legal experts all seem to agree that the prosecution had an uphill battle ahead of them because the crime had happened nearly seven years earlier. Proving a person had been poisoned would be considerably more difficult. They also pointed to the fact that the state's case against Victoria was highly dependent on circumstantial evidence. But the biggest hurdle for prosecutors was that their biggest piece of circumstantial evidence was inadmissible in court. Prosecutors would not be able to use Victoria's alleged crimes in Russia as evidence. The murder of Nadezda's mother and subsequent thefts would have to be addressed in Russia and not the US. To prove Victoria's main motive was murder, 
the prosecution would have to be very careful using that evidence. Assistant DA Constantinos Liturgis outlined the perimeters very carefully to the jury. This is an American court of law. This is not Russia. We are the people of the state of New York, not of the Russian Federation. So during the course of this trial, you will hear minimal information about what's going on in Russia for a number of reasons. Number one, we don't have access to their witnesses. Number two, we don't have access to their evidence. Number three, this is not the case of what happened in Russia. And number four, we don't even have legal authority to prove anything about what happened in Russia. Throughout his opening statements, the prosecutor admitted to the strangeness of the case, a woman attempting to murder another person by poisoning a piece of cheesecake during a so-called eyelash emergency. He even spoke about how during the jury selection, a prospective juror had said the case sounded like it was a joke. Liturgis made it clear that this case was anything but a joke, certainly not for Olga. Alone in her bedroom, she wasn't giggling or having a good time. She was violently vomiting. You see, this woman was very, very sick. And it wasn't some random upset stomach that she was experiencing. This woman was floating in and out of consciousness. She was dizzy. She was disoriented. She didn't know where she was. And she was terrified that there was something seriously wrong with her. Someone had left her there intentionally for her to die alone. She was found almost 24 hours later by her friends, thankfully. And I can tell you, she wasn't laughing when paramedics had to pull her from her bed and load her onto a stretcher because she was too weak to take her own feet. Key for the prosecution, of course, was establishing the fact Victoria had a very significant motive. We're going to prove to you that this defendant came to the United States because she knew that she was wanted, that she was aware of that fact. And while she was here, she developed a motive. We spoke about motivations during jury selection. She developed a motive, a reason to shed the identity of Victoria Nasarova and assume the identity of someone else because she was desperate to never return to Russia. That's the why. Liturgis then explained the primary reason for Victoria's motive. Victoria Nasarova was living in a situation that um, is anything but dreamlike. She was living in Krasnodar, Russia, when in 2014, she became a person of interest in a criminal investigation of a serious nature. As a result of that investigation, sometime in 2014 or 2015, the defendant fled Russia in order to distance herself from that criminal investigation. And in 2015, sometime in the summer, the Russian government issued what's called a red notice. This was a request to law enforcement, not in Russia, not in Europe, but worldwide, seeking the apprehension of the defendant, Victoria Nasarova. Throughout the trial, it was very imperative to firmly establish Victoria's history because it was very much tied in with her motive. Unable to say it directly, 
the prosecution wanted to give a strong hint of what might have happened to Nadezda's mother. Liturgis then stressed the severity of Victoria's crime. In the years 2015, 2016, 2017, the defendant, the woman who's sitting right there, no more than 20 feet of you, was an international fugitive. The prosecution would go on to hammer home Victoria's motive that she'd been working toward her ultimate goal throughout her association with Olga. Because you're going to find out that in 2015 and 2016 in particular, Olga Zvik and the defendant looked very much alike. You're going to see photos of them side by side. Similar age, similar background, similar accent, similar language. The evidence will show that Olga's Vic was a pretty good lookalike for the defendant. And most importantly, she was here alone, not married, no other family. She was vulnerable. That's what the evidence will show. We're going to prove to you that this woman was the perfect target for the defendant. Olga was the first person to take the stand in the case, and a big part of the prosecution's efforts went towards showing how step-by-step step, Victoria integrated herself into Olga's life. Olga explained from her point of view how the relationship evolved, beginning in 2016, when they met through the salon she was working at. And through clients, she came to meet the defendants, who became a regular customer of hers. But you're going to learn that there was something peculiar about what was going on. First, Victoria lived in Brooklyn, but came all the way to Queens to get her eyelashes done. When anyone who lives in New York knows, there are plenty of beauty salons in Brooklyn, and the traffic between Brooklyn and Queens is quite time-consuming. Victoria would give information about herself in conversations, one time saying she was going to get her green card soon. Although it wasn't actually true, what this did was get Olga to volunteer information about herself, like getting her U.S. employment authorization card soon. As this ever-important employment authorization card only lasts one or two years, this might have incited Victoria to take the next step when she did. In the final week of August 2016, the defendant went to the salon, as usual, and had an eyelash repair. At the end of that week, no more than a few days later, she called Olga, panicked, and she told her, I need an emergency eyelash repair. Quite atypically, Victoria wanted it done on the weekend as soon as possible because she was going on a trip. This meant Olga would have to do her work on Victoria in her own apartment, where Olga didn't feel comfortable taking a client. This is when Victoria insisted on bringing along some delicious, famous cheesecake from a famous bakery. But there was something special about what was going to happen in that meeting. The defendant, being so grateful and so appreciative of the fact that Olga was going to bring her into her home, insisted that she bring her a gift. She said to her, I have to bring you a gift. I'm going to bring you some delicious cheesecake. And Olga said, listen, that's fine. 
You don't need to bring me anything. Come to my house. I'll provide the service for you. You don't need to bring anything. No, 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 said the defendant. You're going to love this cheesecake. You have to try it. Again, not wanting to be disrespectful or rude, Olga said, fine, just come already. And when they entered the house, the defendant said to her, we have, you have to try it. You have to have some of this cheesecake. Olga finally relented at one point or another, as you'll learn. And importantly, as the evidence will show, while they were in her room, the defendant opened the container, took two of the three pieces, you'll find out that they were small, took two of the three pieces and ate them in front of Olga, leaving only one piece of cheesecake that Olga could choose from. Now, again, it's in her home. She has a guest who's bringing her a gift. Whether or not she really wanted a cheesecake at that time didn't really matter to her. She's going to eat it because it was brought to her. And so Olga eats the cheesecake. Almost immediately, Olga began feeling ill and eventually passed out. Victoria soon departed, but not before looting Olga's place. The evidence will show that in that period of time, the defendant did what she went there to do and steal those particular items from Olga's Vic, leaving her behind to die. Worse news for Victoria, experts testified that according to the DNA tests, only Victoria and Victoria alone had handled that plastic container that held the cheesecake and the evidence of phenazepam. The prosecution later had Nadezda Ford testify. Her body language and overall demeanor suggested, without explicitly telling the jury, that something terrible had happened in Russia, something the jury already knew that was serious enough that the Russians had sent out an Interpol red notice. Ruben Burakov, the Queen's dry cleaner Victoria made dinner for, also testified. The prosecution aimed to demonstrate that the MO employed by Victoria against Ruben closely paralleled the one she used against Olga. This included the introduction of a toxic substance into the food, resulting in days of memory loss, remarkably similar durations of hospitalization, and the occurrence of robbery during the course of events. On the other side, the defense's intention was simple enough throughout the trial. All they needed to give the jury was room for reasonable doubt that Olga had chosen her own piece of cheesecake. Victoria's defense attorney, Christopher Hoyt, had this to say during his brief opening statements. Miss Nazarova is not guilty of these charges. I'm confident after you've reviewed all the evidence in this case, and you've been instructed on law by the judge, and you go back to the jury room to deliberate, that you will determine the government has not proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. And at the end of the case, I will stand up for you, uh, before you, and I will ask you to deliver the only verdict that justice dictates in that scenario. And that is to find Ms. Nasarova not guilty of all counts. During the defense's cross-examination of Olga, they confronted her with a statement she'd allegedly given police during the original investigation 
claiming she'd told an officer that, instead of being presented with the last piece of cheesecake, she herself had selected the one she wanted. If this were true, it would follow that Victoria would have been foolish playing Russian roulette when she ate the other pieces, which her attorney argued no sane person would do. However, on the stand, Olga adamantly denied she'd ever made that claim. On February 8th, the jury went into deliberation and returned 90 minutes later with a verdict. How say you said count number one of the indictment charging the defendant, Victoria Nasarova, with attempted murder in the second degree, guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Victoria was found guilty. Sentencing was to be held just over a month later, on Tuesday, March 21st. But just earlier that afternoon, Victoria's lawyer, Christopher Hoyt, was arrested for allegedly trying to smuggle two bags of fentanyl-laced marijuana into the Queen's jail Victoria was at. The drugs were allegedly hidden in the bundle of Victoria's clothes being brought to her before a court appearance later that afternoon. Victoria then got a new lawyer, and sentencing was postponed until April 19th. On that day, Olga gave her victim impact statement, telling the court the effects of Victoria's grievous assault on her. Olga said she spent hours crying herself to sleep each night, terrified to go to work, and had lost trust in people. It caused me to lose trust in people. I have difficulty trust people and I cannot know for sure what their true intentions are. I'm grateful that this person will be punished for what she did to me. Olga said it was an easy thing for Victoria to steal and it was easy for her to kill. Assistant DA Liturgis emphasized to the judge that the trial underscored the entirely calculated nature of Victoria's intent to harm Olga. He also pointed out that Victoria exhibited no remorse throughout the proceedings and firmly recommended her to be subject to the maximum 25-year sentence. In the judge's decision, he said, You see, in this place, in this country, there's a price to pay when you try to end someone's life. There's no excuse for what you did here except the exploitation of your own self-interest, and in doing so, you threw everything of value into the wind. So for that, I sentence you to the following. Count one, Sempton Bird, being felony, 21 years in jail. That was only four years less than the prosecution was asking for. Not showing any repentance, some would say, was true form for Victoria. And as she was escorted out of the courtroom, she mumbled, F you to the judge. If there is any solace for two of Victoria's victims, it's perhaps that Olga and Nadezda became the best of friends over it all. Olga said when she met Nadezda, she felt like she'd known her all her life, with Nadezda expressing similar feelings. Nadezda said she feels better knowing that Victoria will no longer be able to hurt anyone. Victoria Nasarova's recent past undoubtedly unfolds like a suspenseful crime novel, reaching its climax in a bold endeavor to murder someone bearing a striking resemblance to her, all in the pursuit of assuming the identity she coveted. Although Olga endured terror, significant suffering, and narrowly escaped murder, 
Victoria is now confronted with a 21-year prison sentence in the U.S., followed by deportation to Russia, with the prospect of spending the remainder of her life within the confines of a harsh Russian correctional facility. Ironically, contrary to folklore, suggesting that an encounter with one's doppelganger portends ill fortune, in this instance, it was Victoria who ultimately fell victim to her own unfortunate circumstances. But no matter how you slice it, perhaps the age-old folklore about doppelgangers is true. What would you do if you ever came across yours? Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>